Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. The following podcast is an exclusive presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Episode number 49, Jonathan Mayberry stops by the show. Did I mention he's a New York Times bestseller? Let's go. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well. So you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Well, hello, hello, hello. This is your Prolific Writer Podcast host, Ryan J. Pelton, and I'm so glad that you are here, the podcast dedicated to helping you write fast, write often, and write well. However, you have found us today. We are so glad that you're here, whether you're listening on the train, maybe you're working out, maybe you're taking care of the kids, taking them to school, doing your thing, doing your deal, doing the things making the words, writing the books, whatever you're doing. I'm so glad that you're, you're here. And today is a, a special day. It's not, not only a special day because as I'm recording this, it's actually Thanksgiving and this, uh, depending on when you hear this, you probably won't hear this on Thanksgiving, but it is Thanksgiving and there's so much to be thankful for. I know there's a lot of crazy going on in the world and it's easy to focus on the crazy, uh, but I don't want us to focus on the crazy. I want us to be thankful and grateful because it's so much easier to complain. It's so much easier to look at all the negative things in the world and look at all the negative things in our lives, but there's also so many good things in our lives, things to be grateful for, family, friends, the communities we're part of, podcasts. I mean, come on, really? the books we write, the things we create, the the stuff we get to be a part of is a really cool thing. And so there's, there's a lot to be grateful for. And one in particular thing that I'm very grateful for is today is the first episode of this podcast being part of a new network of podcasts uh, called Project Entertainment Network. 
and I have been invited into and uh, to a family of podcasts. There's, I don't know exact numbers. I think it's 18 or 20 or something different shows and episodes or excuse me, shows that um, are hosted on project entertainment network. you can actually check out all the shows there, project entertainment network.com. And there's tons of different shows, writing podcasts, podcasts on faith, cooking movies, all kinds of fun stuff. And I have been privileged to be part of that network of shows. And so what that means is it's not a whole lot as far as this show goes, as far as the content and the interviews and the the writing uh, stuff we'll be talking about. That won't change. None of that will change. Um, but you might hear uh, some ads and some different things uh, on the show, and you might hear about other shows that are part of the network. And so just a way to promote those things. And so I want to do that and do that well for you, because there's a, a great host of shows, a great family of shows, if you will, on the Project Entertainment Network family. And so I'm really excited about this. I'm really grateful for this. Um, a friend of mine, Ar- Armand Rosamilia, he actually was on the show, I think episode nine or somewhere a long time ago. He's an author friend and invited me and said, hey, why don't you consider coming on the network? And and I decided to do that. And so I'm really excited to be part of this family. And uh, so you'll hear more about that in the, in the coming weeks. But um, but I wanted to just let you know today, uh, as one of our sponsors, one of our, our main sponsors for the network, is uh, subculture corsets and clothing. And so I don't know if you've heard about them. Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. If you listen to the shows in the network, you'll hear more about subculture corsets and clothing. And they have uh, really great stuff for men and women, uh, unusual clothes, shoes, accessories, uh, different kind of alternative retro kind of cool stuff, steampunk, gothic, whatever you might be into. And so go and check out Subculture online at subculturecorsets.com. That's subculturecorsets.com. And if you use the discount code, the prolific writer, the name of this show, you will get a 10% discount off your first purchase. So go down to subculturecorsets.com, hit the prolific writer and you will get a 10% discount. And also they have a store. So not just online, but most of you probably don't live in the Jacksonville, Florida area, but if you are in Jacksonville, they're just off I-95. So go check them out. Subculturecorsets.com. We're so thankful for them uh, for allowing us to do this and, uh, and support the variety of shows on the project entertainment network. So that's really cool. So go in and check that out. So I am really excited for today's guest, Jonathan Mayberry, who is a New York Times bestselling author. And one of the things that you're going to hear in this um, interview, and also I also want to say is Jonathan actually has a great show, Three Guys and a Beard, who are three guys with beards, excuse me, not three guys and a beard. That would be weird uh, if there's like a beard on the show that was talking, but um, Three Guys with Beards, um, they have a, a show that's part of our network, but I, I just happened, this is b- long before I ever became part of this, um, is he was gracious enough to come on the show and uh, and we interviewed, uh, or I interviewed him and and it was really great. And one of the things that, that he mentioned in the show that really stuck with me and it still stuck with me for weeks is... He didn't start writing fiction until he was 48 years old. And he's, I think he said he's about 60 now. And I, and I really love that. He, he had been writing and doing some things before that, but um, really didn't get serious about his fiction until 48. And I, and I just really stuck with me because he, he kind of hinted that, that it's never too late to start. Um, wherever you are in your writing journey, wherever you're, you're doing, whatever you're up to, and you feel like, you know, it's passed me by all oh, the, you know, everything's just saturated and there's no way I can get into this. And and I think it's just a, a reminder that it's never too late. Age is not a factor. Um, where you live is not a factor. 
um, what you write is not a factor. I think there there's hope for all of us that, that create and write. And so, uh, Jonathan's, uh, interview is just packed full with writerly advice and someone who has written best-selling books, who, who creates tons of stuff, um, comic books and helps with movies and all kinds of stuff. So you're going to love this interview. And I was so thankful to have Jonathan Mayberry on the show. So without further ado, here is Jonathan Mayberry. Welcome, everyone, to the Prolific Writer Podcast. It's your host, Ryan Pelton, and I'm really glad today to have Jonathan Mayberry. He's a New York Times bestselling and five-time Bram Stoker award-winning author, uh, anthology editor, comic book writer, magazine feature writer, playwright, content creator, and writer-teacher lecturer. He was named one of the top uh, 10 horror writers. His books have been sold to more than two in two dozen countries, excuse me. And there's a ton of stuff I could say about you, Jonathan, and I'm not even going to try. And so why don't you say hello and uh, fill any gap, any gaps I missed. Uh, hi, thanks for being here. And, uh, thanks for having me here, rather, excuse me. And, uh, yeah, I, I, one of those writers that kind of has, uh, a usefully short attention span. I keep jumping around doing different things. And, uh, uh, that that keeps keeps it fun and keeps me very very busy. Well, good. Well, so so privileged and thankful to have you on the show, and uh, we'll, and we'll get into that too a little bit of the genre hopping and 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 all that. So, when do you sleep? Like, is that do you have time for that, or do you have some kind of robotic thing going on? Uh, well, I use an army of clones to do all this, but um, now actually, I I take you know I, I end my writing day usually at around dinner time and and. You know, then it's family time. Uh, weekends, I try, depending on where I am in a deadline, I try to you know devote as much time to to family as as I can because I like my family. Um, but during the workday, I am working. I mean, I, I approach it with a very serious mind and and uh, maximize my writing time because it's my job. You know, this, this is this is what I do for a living. Well, that's good. I, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is kind of that, that blue collar mindset of authors is, you know, not waiting for the muse, not waiting for inspiration, putting in the time, um, getting the work done. And, uh, and, you know, I think that's important when we think about, you know, writing and, and even creative things, it's not just, you know, inspiration, but it's, it's perspiration a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, there's, there's this mythology about a writer sitting there waiting for the muse to happen and um, then you know suddenly bang away and, and it's all done. But that's that's really unrealistic. Um, a writing is, is, is a, a profession like anything else. If I was a plumber, I wouldn't be sitting around waiting for the inspiration to unclog a toilet. <laughs> um, just go ahead and do it. You know, And there's skill sets that you can use so that you can always get into your game. Yeah, sure. You do like those moments of really deep insight, the aha moments. But 99% of the job is not those big moments. 99% of the job is is working at your craft. And, uh, uh, there, you know, it's incumbent on us to learn as much about what we do, the, the skills in both business and, and the craft of writing as we can. So. That's good. So let's, uh, let's jump in. I, I know you've already mentioned, you know, there's, you've written in so many genres and, uh, so I'm not going to try to pin you down as one. I actually liked, you said something on your website about, 
you know, nothing really fits on certain bookshelves because I'm a little bit of supernatural, a little bit of horror, a little bit of thriller. And, uh, and actually that's, I think why your books are, are great. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, you write a lot of YA and adult and kind of in the supernatural horror genre. And I, I'm always curious and interested, um, those that kind of walk those two lines, um, kind of what, what are, what are you learning when you write kind of in a horror genre for, let's say young adult versus an adult? Um, is there a different mindset? Is there, are you thinking about different things? I mean, what are you learning from even just the audience's feedback as far as who reads your stuff? Uh, well, first, horror is a very personal thing. Um, I mean, I, I also write thrillers, and thrillers tend to be meta. You know, a lot of my thrillers are what's going to ha- impact our society, mm-hmm. you know, end of the world, bioweapons, that sort of thing. But horror is very personal. We tend to react to what scares us, and what scares us changes over the course of our lives. When I was a little, little kid, around eight, uh, I was convinced there was a werewolf at the top of the stairs in our house. So I had to walk up the stairs, creep up the stairs a certain way so that it couldn't grab me through the banister. By the time I was 12, that was silly. Um, actually, probably by the time I was nine. By the time I was 12, I had other things that I was afraid of. And I was I had afraid of other things when I was 15. Our fears evolve and change based on what we know about the world, what we know about ourselves, what we learn. Um, my fears as a 59-year-old guy are vastly different than my fears as a teenager, but when I'm writing YA, I can I can remember being an 11 year old, a 15 year old, a 17 year old. I can remember what it was like to have certain forces at work in my life, and what what made me uncomfortable, what made me scared, what made me feel vulnerable. And when I write horror, I, I tap into those memories, and I become my younger self, or proxies of that in the uh, in the story. I, I like that. I, you know, I'm writing this uh, children's book for NaNoWriMo, and it's my first kind of younger attempt. And one theme that I just keep, and I, again, I'm kind of wondering where this comes from. I, you know, it wasn't fully thought out, but it's this idea of relationships and kind of heartbreak, you know, middle school kid, you know, trying to be cool, trying to be popular. And, and you just think back when you were a kid, like that was such a big thing for you, you know, that so-and-so would like you or, you know, write the letter and, you know, put yes or no, if you like me, you know, and, and I was kind of just feeding off of that. And I go, you know, that's a real thing. And now when I look back as almost a 40 year old, I'm going that, why did I care so much? You know? <laughs> and, and so I, I find some of those themes kind of coming out in the writing. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and it's funny. I had a conversation kind of along these lines, uh, back in the early eighties, I worked as bodyguard for a while and my partner and I, we had a conversation, uh, shortly after a confrontation where, where I had dealt with an attacker with a knife. And it was like my third or fourth time I had dealt with an attack with a knife. And we were talking about fear. And I mentioned, I said, that third time was not as scary as the first time I asked a girl out in seventh grade. <laughs> I would, the, the stakes seemed much, much higher in seventh grade because if she said no, everybody would know it. I would, I would be horrified. I would die. The world would end and so on. And as, as, a, as an adult, you know, uh, a professional bodyguard facing that knife for the third time was like, yeah, I've been there, done that. Yes, it's scary, but it's, it's not end of the world scary for the most part. Um, even though my life was actually on the line there, but it felt, the stakes felt so much bigger when I was a kid. And, uh, it's kind of fun when you're right. Why to tap into that, that sense of drama, even though if you're a, you know, well-balanced kid, you don't think you're being dramatic. But of course you are. Mm-hmm. Life is dramatic. You're stepping onto a bigger stage than you than you 
a new existed only a year before. When you're in sixth grade, the state you're at the upper end of the age group. Your your sixth graders are running that school because when I was a kid, sixth grade was the end of grade school. Middle school was seventh grade, and you were the low end of the totem pole. Mm -hmm. You were scared. You knew nobody, and you had to face all that. It was terrifying. <laughs> so we can tap into those memories and make realistic fiction. And is that funny? You go back to like your middle school and the, the place seems so small. And, you know, when you walk down the halls, I remember I went back to my middle school and I'm like, why was I so scared of this place? These lockers are like tiny, you know, but like you said, it's like, but back in the yeah. day, it yeah. felt like the scariest place on the planet. Uh, no, I love it. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's. It wasn't. I just want to say one thing about that. A few friends of mine, and I went to visit my high school uh, a few years ago. And uh, it was, we remember our school was being really rough and dangerous. But when we got there, there were cops on every floor, metal detectors at every mm -hmm. door. The level of danger had jumped up, uh, you know, so it made us feel like, what the hell were we afraid of? <laughs> right. You know? Right. It's all relative. Right. It's all relative. Yep. So let's dig in a little bit further into your, your kind of backstory. Uh, you know, you obviously write in, you know, thriller, supernatural, horror, different things. But what, what's kind of been your influences that kind of got you into writing and why do you write what you write? And talk a little bit about that kind of upbringing, kind of, you know, home life. What was all that about? Yeah, well, home life was a bit of a scary story. I, I grew up in a very abusive household in a very violent neighborhood. So, hmm. you know, I, I saw real monsters around me. So fictional monsters were actually somewhat scary as they might be, they were also somewhat entertaining because fictional monsters always had something, some easy way to stop them, a silver mm -hmm. bullet, a stake, you know, whatever. Um, so I kind of glommed onto horror back then because the monsters always lost in the third act. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it kind of gave you a little bit of optimism when, when you're in a tough environment um, to know that, that solutions may exist that you're just not aware of them yet. So that was that was the home life. But then I had my grandmother who lived about a mile away, and she was absolutely wonderful. She was a, a quite a bit older. Um, I mean, she was she was in her forties when uh, or forties old when my mother was born. My mother was about forty when I was born. So when I when, when I was a kid, you know, my grandmother was in her nineties, uh, you know, nineties and then uh, late nineties. So she was born in the 1800s. I was born in 1958. So she was actually born in the 1800s in Europe. She had Scottish, French, and German folklore um, as a background for her childhood. And she read so much about it. It taught me a lot about the monsters around the world, the folkloric versions of monsters, which are quite a bit different than the, the Hollywood versions. And they're much scarier. You know, if you ever read Grimm's fairy tales, they are a lot different um, than the versions they, they turn into Disney movies. Mm. Um, so I, I had a lot of influence there. And then in middle school, my, my uh, librarian in middle school was the secretary for two different clubs of professional writers, one that met in Philly and one that met in New York. And she took me to the, the meetings. So, you know, I'm getting to meet on a fairly regular basis, guys like uh, Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, Harlan Ellison, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, guys like that, the giants in the industry of science fiction, fantasy and horror. And um, for three years, you know, these guys were mentoring me, but also advising me on reading deeply into various genres and uh, talking about the nature of what is scary, what is fantastic. Um, so I had some pretty strong early influences, uh, negative and positive. I would say, looking back, I, I think of the positive ones more often because they, they framed who I became and, all, and quite a bit what I write. 
So when was there a moment when you were growing up where you kind of had that aha moment and you decided, I, I want to write. That's that's what I want to do. That's my life goal. That's my life ambition. Was there, there a moment that that happened? Or was there a moment even as a writer where you said, I think I can do this? I think I was an embryo, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, before I could read and write, I was telling stories with toys. So I've always been the storyteller. With my friends, I'd always make up the game. I'd always uh, create the rules for something we were going to do. So it was I was always creating that story. Um, it wasn't until later, I guess around fourth grade, uh, where I was doing a lot more reading, I realized that you know I, I could probably tell a story like this. So I started drawing comics back then because I was in the, in the Marvel comics as a little kid. And started writing these long, wandering stories for uh, for Marvel, you know, in my head. Um, and then uh, in middle school, you know, I, I convinced my uh, middle school uh, librarian that I really wanted to be a writer, and that's why she introduced me to so many writers. And that the more I talked to them, the more I realized that this was something I could probably actually do. And uh, oddly enough, though, I didn't get into fiction until my forties. I was a. I went to college for journalism, and I was a nonfiction writer part time uh, for 25 years. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I thought I'd like to take a real swing at fiction, to, partly to see if I'd like it, partly to see if I'd be any good at it. Turns out that's what I love most. Hmm. And I, I, you know, my first novel came out when I was uh, 48. That's great. Well, so what? Tell us your first your first thing. Go go, go kind of there. Um, you know, when you decided I want to try something in fiction, how did that how did that process work? Well, I, I like spooky things. Uh, I like haunted hayrides and haunted houses and cornfields. And in the suburbs of Philadelphia, there was a little town called New Hope that was known widely as the most haunted town around. And one in one article in Newsweek, it had been rated the most haunted town in America. Um, and I thought, wow, what, what a great reputation. And I start playing the what if game. Um, like, what if it really was the most wanted town in America? What if that's not a good thing, even though the town built its tourism around it? So I kept playing what if, what if? And I had the idea for a story about people in a small town who celebrate Halloween, and uh, they confront, they wind up confronting monsters, vampires, werewolves, and so on. But because all they know about monsters comes from books and movies, they're not ready to confront the kinds of monsters that they, they, they face, because these are folklore now, I'll back just a little bit. In 2000, I published a book was called The Vampire Slayer's Field Guide to the Undead, which was all folklore about monsters. And, you know, it's kind of a, a nod to my grandmother and a lot of the stuff she taught me. So by researching that book, it kind of primed the pump. So then in 2003 and four, when I was, I was writing Ghost Road Blues, my first novel, I was... Um, I was really into the folklore monsters and how scary they were. And I, try, I, I tried writing a novel without having learned how to do it. I didn't take any fiction classes ever. Um, but what I did is I, I got some of my favorite novels that were in that genre, uh, Salem's Lot by Stephen King, uh, Ghost Story of Peter Straub, etc. I read them as a reader and then read them multiple times as a writer, deconstructing them, looking for the elements of craft that I had read about in like Writer's Digest magazine. You know, like point of view, voice, pace, uh, three-act structure, and so on. So I taught myself about fiction by reading fiction in the genre I wanted to write. So when I finally sat down to write, I, I didn't try to copy them. I tried to find what my voice was. And I really didn't have that big an expectation of selling it. I just wanted to write something that I would enjoy reading. And, uh, in fact, a little side note, 
when I was a kid, Ray Bradbury said, not only should you write what you want to read, you should write the book that you would go out of your way to read. So I tried to write that. And um, the book became Ghost Road Blues. And in the writing, I realized that the story I had concocted was way too big for one book. So when I got my agent, we pitched it as a trilogy. And Ghost Road Blues came out in 2006. That's great. So um, so t- talk a little bit of um, when you were kind of writing that, that first book. Um, you know, I, I really like that, that thread you said about reading as a reader and then studying as a writer. I think that's, there's some great wisdom in there. I heard a writing teacher actually talk about that one time that, you know, take, take your favorite short story and just kind of, you know, deconstruct it, you know, what works, you know, where does stuff happen? Why did they do that? You know, just try to think, think like a writer. Um, so, you know, you're, so what were you doing around that time as far as work and vocation? I mean, were you still a journalist or like, how did you find the time to do that? And, you know, with family and everything else? This this is a result of something very, very wonderful. My, my wife, I believe, had read an interview with Dean Koontz where his wife had offered him a deal where um, he, he, see, he had had a science fiction career back in the 60s and it kind of petered out. And he wanted to redefine himself as a thriller writer. So she said, OK, I'll make you a deal. I'll go to work for five years. You go figure out how to write a thriller. And at the end of five years, you um, can't do that. Then you go back to work, too. So my wife offered me the same deal, and she went out and got a, a secretarial job, receptionist job. Um, it was not a great job, but she pay, it paid the bills, and she worked hard at it. And I had my ass in the chair every day learning how to write and also writing. And uh, when that five years was up, Ghost Road Blues was sold, and, and now she uh, doesn't have to work. And um, we live a beautiful life, and it would not have happened had she not uh, offered that wonderful deal to me and uh, been so generous with it. And so any, any, anything that happened there is a result of her giving me the opportunity to really focus on my craft. Hey, I think there's, there's something really, really cool about that because I think writers sometimes think about, you know, the tortured artists and all that, but there's something about having support systems and, and family and, and keeping things, you know, in, in right priority, because I don't think you can be a, a long-term writer if everything else is falling you know, down around you. And, uh, you know, and so I think there's a kind of a new narrative that is starting to emerge where people are realizing like, like healthy lives and relationships do matter and it can't just be all writing. Yeah. And, and also you have to, in in the process, you also have to respect, um, yourself as a writer. You have to say, okay, well, if, if she's giving me this opportunity, she must have faith in me, you know, in my potential. I can't fail in that, that expectation. So I need to make sure that I learn the, the most I can about the craft, the most I can about the business part of it to write the best possible novel, not just something that's self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. You have to really put your heart and soul into it. And um, as a result, what happens is you wind up becoming a writer who can not only turn out a good book, but consistently turn out saleable material that, that you feel proud of, that your readers respond to, and that you know gives you the life that, that you want to live. Mm-hmm. Great. So I, I'm not an expert on accents or origins, but I, I, I sense you're not from California. I know you live in California now. I hear a different accent. So are you from somewhere else? Not Cal- Are you not a yeah, California I, native? I grew up in Philadelphia. I've lived in California for uh, four years. Okay. And, uh, I, you know, Philadelphia was, it depends on what, what part of the town you grew up in. It can be a really nice, upscale, relaxed, artsy town, or it can be... <laughs> 
the worst kind of dangerous, low-income neighborhood. And unfortunately, that's where I came from. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from it and uh, had, a, had a, uh, uh, a good launch pad. But uh, now I'm a Californian and I consider myself a Californian. Well, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Long Beach area, and I know I, I think I saw Del Mar. Is that where you're, you live now? Yes. Don't worry, we won't show up to your house. But um, <laughs> uh, and the and people can't see because it is the podcast. They can't see your Hawaiian shirt, so figure that's probably not Philadelphia. No. So. Well, well, I was wearing Hawaiian shirts long before I moved to California. Okay, so you were <laughs> a trendsetter. I love it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you've had some obviously success. You, you've been a full-time writer for a while. Um, share with us. I, I love hearing just because of the things that you learned from it. What, what was kind of a, a, a writing or publishing failure um, that really taught you some lessons? Well, without naming names, uh, <laughs> I got involved in a, in a small press early on with, 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 with one of those deals where press and uh, – I got involved in the deal uh, with, with instead of getting a, an advance and a, and a contract, it was uh, for shares of stock, and I did it all in good faith. And it, it wound up wound up not being a successful venture for anyone, and it, it damaged the friendship. It, it damaged my sense of trust um, and so on. But I, I don't I don't focus on the failure part of it as much as I do on the opportunity to to learn because before that. Before that happened, I didn't know a lot about the business side of publishing. I knew more about the writing side. And the magazine world, which is, which is what I had been mostly in, is, is pretty antiseptic. You know, you, you pitch something, they say, yes, you write it, get it, it's done. But with, um, uh, with, with the book world, it's a little it's more complicated because they're higher stakes. So what I did is I, I took that as an opportunity to say, okay, well, if I, what would have happened had I known more about the business? So I used that as an opportunity to go out and learn the business. As a result, I went up going from someone who, because of my lack of understanding, was somewhat um, vulnerable to, to bad decisions and, and so on, to someone who now understands how the business works. And as a result, I, I steer my career and I can work more effectively with my film agent, my, my literary agent, and, and publishers and editors so that everything is on the up and up and everything moves forward in a way that, that makes everyone happy. So I don't, I don't get, let myself get mired in the negative. I, I use it as, as a, as a teachable moment for myself. And now I understand the business very, very well. And, and enjoy it too. So for a writer listening, um, whether they're indie published, self-published, traditionally published, uh, what are some maybe questions they should be asking when they, they start, I know this could get us down a, a big rabbit hole, but but just some questions, basic questions when they're looking at contracts, when they're, you know, deciding if this is a right fit. You know, they're looking at a small press, they're looking at, you know, what, what are some things that you you could kind of share with us? Well, I haven't. Uh, one comment about that: I haven't ever self-published, so I don't know much about that side of, of mm -hmm. the biz. With small presses, I made the mistake of of doing it on a handshake and stock as opposed to a contract, which mm -hmm. meant that. When they just simply increased the, the number of stock shares, mine became devalued. That was just a stupid move in retrospect, you know, not, not the brightest move. Since then, um, if I didn't have an agent, and I have friends who don't have agents, I always recommend that if you don't have an agent and you get a contract, pay a lawyer for an hour of their time to read that contract and mm -hmm. see if it's something you should sign. Lawyers can, can sell you an hour or two of their, of their time, and it's worth doing because if you don't have good legal advice and you sign a contract, 
It can hurt you in your career, and it can also spoil the whole process of being in this world. It, it, it can make, help you make the kind of decisions that, that will, will haunt you for a while. So just do the right thing, get a lawyer. I also recommend that um, writers make sure that, that they, they try to find a good agent first, and there are ways to do that. Publishersmarketplace.com, for example, you can find agents who are very specific to your kind of writing, and then you should pitch to them and you can do so with a really good query letter. And by the way, within a, about a week, I'm going to have a sample query letter up as a down, free downloadable PDF on my website, jonathanmayberry.com. People can go there and just download that as a sample because you really need a good good query. And that query was not only a, uh, it's a variation now of the one that I used to get my agent, but it's also been tweaked by dozens of top agents and editors because it's the kind of query they want to see come across their desk. So, uh, so those are two things. And also, uh, going to writers' conferences, asking questions. Now, there's always um, agents and editors there. Ask questions. Talk about the business. Talk to writers who are in the business and ask advice. I, very few people in this business are unwilling to give advice or, mm -hmm. to, or to give some guidance. Now, I'm not saying they're going to stop and read your book, but they, they might answer some, some decent questions about – should I do this or what can I do or you know uh, where can I go for a certain kind of re resource? We in the business really like other people to get in the business, but we like them not to hit speed bumps all the way you know down the road. Sometimes it's just a matter of networking. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's really helpful advice. Thank you for that. Um, so let's let's uh, shift gears here and put you on the other side uh, as the. Um, I know you've edited and you've. Um, worked on different anthologies, seen a lot of work come your way too. Um, and, and I want to, from an editor's perspective and from someone who's, who's read a lot, you know, written a lot, um, what are some things you see kind of for young writers or new writers uh, that maybe come across your desk that, that maybe they do poorly or things that they could do better? Um, I, I know that could be very broad. Um, but yeah. No, I no, no. I actually, have a, that, that, that's a good, good question because one of the things that I see as a, the classic rookie mistake take they like you know somebody likes something so much that they want to write in the genre of something but they try too hard to imitate the thing they like for example I, i've done a, a bunch of zombie fiction and a lot of people either want to copy world war z or forest of hands and teeth by carrie ryan or night of the living dead they love those or walking dead they love the source material so much that they want to write something as if almost as if they're doing fan fiction mm -hmm. the problem there is that professional is already doing that there may be room for you to come in and write something else in the world of zombies or vampires or you know spaceships or whatever your genre and subgenre uh, might be, but you can't do it by imitation. You have to do it by saying, okay, what's the new thing I can say about this? And there's always something new you can say about it, always. There's, there's no end to the possibilities of creativity. There's no genre that is so completely worn out that there's nothing new to say. And a good example of this, you know, people say that the zombie genre is played out. Well, they said that a while ago, and then, then we went up with World War Z and Resident Evil and The Rising by Brian Keene. They, it, it, it faltered a little bit, and then we got Forest of Hands and Teeth by Carrie Ryan, which, which brought zombies into the, the young adult world. Um, then we had Warm Bodies by Isaac, uh, Isaac Marion, which uh, brought a God, all, all these different stories. Uh, we had uh, Monster Island, Monster Nation, Monster Planet by David Wellington, which um, took d demons and zombies and put them in a really compelling political story, and so on. Um, the P uh, Girl with All the Gifts, Train to Busan. You know, what, what we see is 
that you can take something that is a, a beloved trope and put new spin on it by putting yourself in the heads of different characters and each person, each character becomes a new viewpoint because their, their experiences will be unique. And, uh, for example, if I was, uh, if somebody wanted to, to, to break into writing zombies, forget about writing about the zombie. The monster should never be your focus. Think about somebody you identify with, maybe a, a cipher of yourself or some other person. What's, what would the zombie apocalypse do to their, their life, their lifestyle, their hopes and dreams? If you start there, you start with the, with the position of uniqueness because it's not going to be the same as somebody doing a George Romero-esque or, or uh, uh, David Wellington or, or Max Brooks because they started with different point of view characters. That's really good. That's so, you know, do people, should they read a lot? Like if you're going, Hey, I want to write a zombie, you know, the next great zombie book, uh, should they go read a lot of those zombie books or is that dangerous? Cause they'll just start imitating or should they, um, kind of just do Imitation it. Shouldn't happen by accident. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I always advocate that you read deeply into the genre in which you want to write. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I did a steampunk novel based on a board game a few years ago called ghost walkers. I read a lot of steampunk. I read a lot of weird Western and I read a lot of uh, game adaptations um, because I wanted to see how people handled it, not because I wanted to imitate. Mm -hmm. And just because you study the form doesn't mean you have to copy the form. Mm -hmm. Artists always study the brushwork of, say, Van Gogh or or, uh, Monet, but it doesn't mean they're going to try to paint like those guys. They want to understand how those those artists took the elements of color and movement and brushstrokes and palette knife uh, application to create certain moods. And because that should suggest to you um, other possibilities for using those medium in, in ways that speak to your vision. Hmm. So, yes, read the genre, but also make sure that you understand what your own creative voice is going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there, there might, and you know, you, you can chime in if you think this is dumb advice, but, you know, there, also when you read stuff like that is go, what do you not like about it? You know, what, what do you, what do you go, you know, I, why do they always do that? Why don't, why don't we, what if, what if you did this, you know? And, and I wonder just kind of the opposite, you know, cause there, there are certain, you know, tropes you just get kind of tired of. It's like, why do they always do that? What if I wrote a book through this lens or this person or this, you know, setting or why, you know, I always, I always find like with thrillers, it's always New York city. It's always, you know, LA. So I wrote a, a thriller that's based in small town, Missouri. You know, it's like, why do I always have to be in the big town? You know, um, you know, or whatever. Right. And, and it's, it, tropes are, are a funny thing. Uh, you know, we, there's a fine line between a, a trope and a cliche. Um, and you don't want to do the cliche. You don't want to just do an echo mm-hmm. setting something in, in, in a certain world or a certain type of thing within that world. Um, you don't have to echo. You really don't. And I'll only use my own books as an example. When I was writing uh, uh, Dead of Night, now it was my homage to George Romero. You know, I had seen Night of the Living Dead on its world premiere in 1968 as a 10-year-old. Hmm. I loved that. And I wanted to write something that would please George, which later on I found out he actually loved the book, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Um, but I, you know, I want to do the show, slow shuffling zombies, the standard Romero-esque zombie from the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want to do the, the versions he did. So I said, you know, I wanted a new entry point, and I thought about um, what the heartbreak is in a zombie apocalypse, you know, as, as it unfolds. And at the time, my, my uh, father-in-law was going through, uh, going through dementia, 
and he was a brilliant man, great musician. And I, I was watching this process of him, you know, going further and further away from, from his itself. And I thought, well, what if, and you play the what if game, what if in the zombie apocalypse, does each person who becomes a zombie is aware of what their body is doing, but can't control it. They're helpless passengers. So when I wrote that story, I wrote a chapter, it actually became the, the opening chapters of the book, from the point of view of the very first victim of the zombie apocalypse, he, he wakes up essentially dead. His body is being driven by, by the parasites that, that are the basis of the zombie apocalypse of my story. He, can, he is connected to all five senses, but he is not connected to nerve conduction. So we can't actually control what the body does, but he can taste, hear, feel, smell, you know, the whole bit, hmm. which is incredibly horrific to me. Now, that is the trope of the slow shuffling zombie, but it is not what I have seen before. And that's, that's, that's what it comes down to. What is your newness? What is the, the freshness that you're breathing into, this, into the genre? And if you can't find it, perhaps go write something else and come back to it when you have the idea for, for the unique element. Well, I love that. That's really great. That's really great. Um, now let's talk a little bit just about your own um, kind of evolution as uh, as a storyteller. You know, obviously you you got into the game, at least the fiction game later, and um, you know didn't know what you're doing. You know, just kind of jumping in with two feet. But obviously you've done some journalism, and some other things. And uh, so let's talk a little about your process. How do you you know how do you create? Um, so much stuff. How, how, what does your day look like? How do you organize it so you can kind of keep all your projects in order? And then kind of talk a little just how your process has kind of evolved over the years. Sure. Um, r- right now, the you know, kind of day in the life thing is I'm, I usually write about eight hours a day, give or take. Um, that usually means that in the morning, I, I, I actually like the idea of going to work. So in the morning, I usually go out. There's a favorite restaurant. They, they hold that table, a table for me so I can go in my corner, sit and write. They leave me alone as long as I, I want um, and I, I do a certain amount of writing in the morning. I uh, usually come home in the afternoons and, and finish, you know, do my afternoon writing from home. Um, I, I devote 50 minutes out of each hour to writing and 10 minutes out of each hour to social media. And I drive my own social media. So I want the, the interaction. I like the connection with people. And I like um, sharing pop culture stuff because I'm still a pop culture nerd. You know, I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have to devote a certain amount of time to business. Like I've got several things going on in Hollywood right now. They require a certain amount of time. I have uh, have contracts. If I'm editing an anthology, I sometimes have to stop and read uh, or do uh, edits for uh, for projects. All of that fills a day, and sometimes it can crowd a day. So you have to allow it to – you have to allow time for it. That means putting it overtime sometimes. It's very much running a small business. You know, if I was a plumber and I got – I, I'm comfortable doing six jobs, but eight jobs came in. I'm not going to turn away more work. I want to go work overtime fit and do the other two jobs because that's how you grow your business. Mm-hmm. When I first started out, um, it took me a lot longer to do every project. Like my first novel took me three and a half years to actually write. Mm. Um, my last novel, Broken Lands, which was the, uh, the first of a new spinoff of my Rotten Ruin of YA series, took me a little over six weeks to write. Um, and, and it's 110,000, 115,000 words to did it, did the first draft in six weeks and a polish and got it off to my editor. In fact, while we were sitting here, the email came in from my editor with the edit notes on that for that book just a few minutes ago. Um, so that's something now I'm writing a book right now. 
I've got to make time to do those edits while continuing to work on the book that I have due in the next couple of weeks. So I, time management is really important. I can't waste time during my business day. Um, I, if I do short stories, they, like my novels, get budgeted, into, you know, put into my, my time budget. They get calendared and uh, they get prioritized. If I, you know, I might have five short stories that I want to do, but if I have a novel doing that same period of time and don't have wiggle room, I may have to back out of those anthologies um, because the novel is more important for me. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's a matter of running a business like a business. The, your business happens to be creativity, but it's still a business mm -hmm. that requires, you know, uh, good thought and, and practices and efficiency. And you're always looking for new ways to be more efficient. Actually, one, one way I found that make, two ways I found that make me efficient, uh, more efficient. One is when I have a, a novel that, I'm, that, that is either almost done or done, since I, uh, my wife and I travel a lot, she'll read the book to me. And I'll hear, <clears throat> hear errors, word echoes, clunky sentences, repetitions, characters that are speaking in, in, in ways that aren't appropriate to them. And I can dictate changes uh, or, may, or tell her to put a note in there for me to make a longer change. And then when I go do those changes, that essentially it's a second draft. Um, but I've heard the book now. And then this is something that works once you've had a couple of books out. If you, uh, since these days a lot of books go to audio, listen to the audio book of, of your uh, previous work or read the final printed version because that version has gone through you know, your hands, uh, input from your agent, input from your editors, and sometimes there's more than one editor. It's gone through all those different stages, and the version that comes out is your final edited voice. So if you read that, become familiar with your final edited voice, it makes it easier then to write in that voice for your next book, which shortens the process of, of going from first draft to final. Well, that's great. That's great. That's really good advice. Um, now, you're, you're talking specifically for like a series, if you're writing a series of books with mm -hmm. similar characters and similar world and all that. Now, do you are you outlining all this? Are you just jumping right in? Like, what's what's been your process for that? I, I definitely write an outline. Mm -hmm. I like structure because also an outline, you know, most books, whether it's a horror, uh, a thriller, a, a science fiction or whatever, there's still usually some element of mystery in the story. And I, I like, you know, laying a little bit of some clues here and there, building the tension along the way, um, foreshadowing a tad. So. I need to know how it's going to end in order for me to work toward that conclusion and, and lay the right groundwork. Um, so I, I do my outline. I, I don't do a heavy outline in that I don't map out every little single detail because there's always organic growth along the way. Uh -huh. And if something changes, it may impact everything that follows it. So I, I need my outline to be bare bones enough so that it has the formula of cause and effect without limiting me from being able to make adjustments. And then usually what I do is I, I jump forward, like I, I'll write the opening first, then I jump forward and write the ending. Whether it's a short story or a novel, I go forward and write the ending. That way I know exactly how it's going to end, and I can back up and aim at that ending, which allows me to avoid writing a lot of stuff that doesn't belong and keeps me on track. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps also shorten the pace because, uh, or tighten the pace because you know where it's going and you want to you rocket the story along so that it gets there. Hmm. That's good. Like it. So what, what keeps you inspired? What keeps you going each day? You're running this, you know, media empire. Um, you know, you're busy, you got movies, you got books, you got all kinds of stuff. So what, what's kind of your daily inspiration? What, what gets you up in the morning? Uh, I'm having an insane amount of fun. <laughs> um, I mean, you figure my, my job description 
can variously, variously be described as professional daydreamer, <laughs> well-paid liar. Uh, I make stuff up for a living and get paid for it. So, and also, I get to play in the world's, you know, going back to what Bradbury said about, you know, write the stuff you would go out of your way to read. I get to play in the worlds that I would want to play in anyway. You know, horror, science fiction, fantasy. I read that stuff. Uh, comics. I read comics. Um, so writing that stuff is me p- playing. It's like professional fan fiction in a way. Um, I get to I get to, to have fun all, all day long. Why wouldn't I want to get out of bed and get going? Mm-hmm. I love it. Love it. No, I think, you know... The, um, Dean Wesley Smith always talks about that. Just making sure you're having fun. Like we're not digging ditches, you know, we're not, you know, it's not that it can be stressful, but you know, it is a lot of fun and we have to remember that, you know, as we keep, keep going along. That's great. Yeah. And, and fun is, you know, with a lot of uh, writers who are just starting out, one of the problems they encounter is they have more ideas than they know what to do with. And my response there is always pick the one that sounds like to be the most fun to write. Mm Mm-hmm. That helps that that process along. That's great. So uh, one of the things we we love to do on our show is we, I call them quick hit questions, and so these are just things that um, kind of recommendations, um, things you're reading, things you're watching that you think people would enjoy. So um, give us a, kind of a must read fiction book that you are author that people need to read, other than your own. Other than my own, um, I'm a real big fan of. of Anything written by my, my buddy Christopher Golden. Ararat is, is one of my favorite novels and uh, came out about a year ago. It's just an amazing book. But he's one of those writers that every time he writes a book, um, I'm in. You know, on the first page, I'm, I'm in already. So, and, and he doesn't – I mean, he's well-known, but he's not as well-known as he should be. Mm-hmm. So Chris Golden. And for fantasy, uh, Jim Moore, James Moore, uh, his Seven Forges series I think is the best epic fantasy being published right now. And it's criminally underappreciated. Hmm. So those 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 are two two uh, things that I think people should jump right on. And um, uh, I, I, there's a lot, I and mean, you, you can drill down into, into both their careers. There's a lot of great stuff hmm. there too. Any um, uh, any no, nonfiction? Nonfiction is funny with nonfiction. I, I, most of what I read in nonfiction tends to be uh, research stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like Parasite Rex by uh, Carl Zimmer, which is a great book on parasites. It's, it's about 10 or 12 years old now, absolutely as relevant now as it was then. And it, was uh, it was actually the inspiration um, for uh, my Dead of Night novel uh, in, in a large way because I wanted to use parasites as, as a cause for zombies. But I'm also, you know, I read a lot of magazines, a lot of uh, trade journals in, in science and politics uh, to, to get a good idea of what's going on. So that's basically where my nonfiction goes. Probably my favorite one that kind of straddles both lines is the work of Leslie Klinger, who is an, who does annotated books. He's done the annotated Sandman, annotated Sherlock Holmes, Lovecraft, Dracula. He just came out with an annotated Frankenstein. Um, it is absolutely brilliant. Uh, if you if you've read the book, you know Frankenstein, which most of us have. Reading the annotation gives you more about the the times and personality of Mary Shelley. But also the things that were relevant to her. I mean, she was not writing a horror story. Mm-hmm. She was writing a story about the consequences of one's actions. Mm-hmm. And um, the mo- if you've seen the movies but haven't read the book, they are not the same thing. So the annotation allows you to reread the book but also go, you know, go much deeper. So Leslie Klinger's Annotated Frankenstein just came out. And uh, it's, it's my favorite current 
read that, that straddles the line from both fiction and nonfiction. Oh, that sounds fantastic. How about TV or film? Anything we got to go watch? Well, I, I, I just saw Thor Ragnarok twice, so I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah, I heard good things I about thought, that. I, I loved the first two Thor films, but I thought they were a little humorless. This is straight-out comedy. Mm. It's, it's kind of more along the lines of Guardians of the Galaxy than, than uh, say, Civil War. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. Um, and Murder on the Orient Express, I thought was really, really, really well done. Even though I knew the ending, I, I very much enjoyed the new Kenneth Branagh version. Mm-hmm. For TV, you know, Stranger Things, but, you know, everyone's saying that. Everybody mm-hmm. is right. Um, but I'm also, it's, it's crazy, I'm a fan of the, um, the DC TV universe, not so much their films, but I, you know, I love Arrow, I love mm-hmm. Supergirl, I love Flash, and I, I really love Gotham. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm enjoying those shows, the the, the adaptations, uh, and the fact that they are clearly within the DC universe. They're drawing a lot of elements from the comics, mm-hmm. as opposed to making this, the show seem like it doesn't exist in, in relation to the comics. Mm-hmm. And that's a nice, nice nod, uh, nice showing of respect for the fan base. So I'm, I'm, I love those shows. Okay. And um, Walking Dead, I'm still a fan. You know, mm-hmm. Bob Kirkman's a, a buddy of mine, and, and I, I love what he's doing with the show. Um, still hanging in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're the second one that's mentioned Arrow. Um, I didn't even know it has like six seasons. And uh, yeah. yeah, sounds like a good one. Uh, let's see. And also, Any... yeah, go ahead. Quick one. Z Nation. Z Nation. It's a sci-fi channel zombie show um, created by Craig Engler. And it is, it's a hoot. It's comedy and drama and action and over-the-top zombies. It's, it's just so much fun. That sounds fun. Uh, any like writer, it doesn't have to be writer, but any writer tool software that you just recommend as far as in your writing toolbox? No, I use Microsoft Word. I, okay. I, I know that things like Scrivener and, and Final Draft are really useful to people, but I'm, I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want the bells and whistles to interfere with my writing, so mm-hmm. I, I just use uh, um, Word. Okay. In fact, uh, even when I write comic book scripts for Marvel or, or IDW, uh, some guys use script soft writing software. I just use Microsoft Word. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, Jonathan. So we always ask this question. It's called our, our three truths question. And so you're in a haunted you're in a haunted house, and you find a microphone. And this microphone is live, and you have access to the aspiring writer in the universe, and you want to give them three writer truths, three writer sage advice things. What would you say to them? Uh, first, be relentless. Don't let anyone talk you out of writing. I mean, and they will. People will tell you about how hard it is and, and all, all the, the speed bumps and hurdles. I don't care. Be relentless. Second, understand the difference between writing and publishing. Mm-hmm. Writing is an art. It is the intimate conversation between us and the reader. Publishing is a business whose sole concern is selling copies of art. <laughs> understand the needs and practices of both and be good at both. And, and the third is um, have fun all the time. No matter what you're doing, try to find the fun in it because you'll stay enthused and that enthusiasm will show through when you're writing, even when you're writing something dark. Love it. Great advice. Great advice. So I know you have a million things in the world. Um, where would people start if they want to start with Jonathan Mayberry? Where would they start? And maybe even what are you working on? Um, kind of both those questions. Okay, well, the easiest way to, to start is go to my website, jonathanmayberry.com, and my last name is spelled M-A-B-E-R-R-Y, mm. not M-A-Y, it's M-A-B, so jonathanmayberry.com. Not like the Griffith, Andy Griffith show. 
Yeah, not looking any good for sure. Um, but right now I'm doing the 10th book in my Joe Ledger Thriller series, Weird Science Thriller, uh, Deep Silence, and it's going to be coming out next fall. Uh, I am a, a, about a month away from finishing that book, and it's, it's very weird. Um, I have a lot of fun with these books. And um, I'm touring a little bit now in support of an anthology tied to that series called Joe Ledger Unstoppable that I co-edited co with Brian uh, Thomas Schmidt, where we got a lot of other writers like Scott Sigler and, and Joe McKenney and, and um, Steve Alton and so on, uh, Sean McGuire, to write Joe Ledger stories because they're, they're friends and they're fans of the, book, of the series. So doing that, um, and I just, just got the edit notes for Broken Lands, which will be coming out next fall which is a spinoff of my Teen Rotten Ruin series. And the new series will, will take place in South Texas with a Latina main character, and I'm having fun with that. But the book I'm, I'm most excited about comes out in March. It's called Glimpse. It's a rare stand-alone for me. A hardcover release in March, March 27th, about a um, young woman, 26 years old, three years uh, recovered after seven years on drugs, looking for the child she gave up for adoption when she was 16, and that child is in the hands of very, very, very bad people. Hmm. Um, it is a suspense with horror elements, and, we, and there's already quite a bit of um, uh, TV interest in it. And uh, so that that's coming out in, in March, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Well, Jonathan, this has been such a privilege and an honor, and you have written so many great books, and I'm so excited for more people to know about you. And uh, so go check out JonathanMayberry.com. Go check out his books. And uh, you've helped a lot of writers today, so thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, man. This, is, this has been great. Well, there you have it, prolific writer nation, Jonathan Mayberry on the show. What a great interview. What a, what a gracious man. I just loved his, his positivity, his, his humbleness, uh, or I should say humility. Uh, and, and just what he shared about it's never too late to start writing. I love all the, the things he talks about with the process, how he works and how he does the things he gets to do. And I and also love that, that he said, you know, you need to have fun. And, and I think that's one of the keys is if you're not having fun in what you're writing, maybe you need to write something else, or maybe you need to write something different, or maybe not write at all. It, it should be fun. This is not digging dishes, people. Um, so thank you, Jonathan Mayberry, for coming on the show. Just a, a quick reminder, two things. Remember... Um, our sponsor today, Subculture Corsets and Clothing. If you go to subculturecorsets.com, type in the prolific writer, you'll get a 10% discount on your next purchase. So check that out. And also, hey, if you could leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you listen to this podcast, it really helps get the podcast out into the world. Um, so thankful for um, the Project Entertainment Network and all the host of shows. Go check out their shows. There's a ton of them there. ProjectEntertainmentNetwork.com and you're going to love all the other great shows that are coming out as well. Uh, so thanks everybody for stopping by the program today. Um, and hey, I just have one more thing I need to tell you is go get those words on the page. And this is Ryan J. Pelton. It's great chatting with you and I'll talk to you real, real soon. Once upon a time, a madman, poet, and thief known as John Urbansick, that's me, challenged himself, myself, to write a story a day, every day, for a year, by hand. Some of them worked. Some of them failed. Some of them were spectacular. Then I did it again. 
Join me every week for Ink Stains as I do it a third time. And I will read you some of these stories. I'll talk about the process, about creativity in general, writing in specific, and maybe I can help ignite your artistic adventures. This has been an exclusive presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.